0: Hi there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for Coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome back to another episode of T4C. If you're interested in learning more about what it's like to be an engineer, specifically a chemical engineer then this is the episode for you because my next guest has been a chemical engineer for the last 15 years and her mission is to inspire girls and young women to enter this dynamic and much more diverse and interesting industry than you probably imagined it to be. But before I introduce you to Brenda Dinbestin, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's Time for Coffee's newsletter that features career advice, insights, and inspiration that you won't find anywhere else. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time4coffee.org and the sign up box is right there. Now, my Java lovers, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated brew because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest is Brenda Dibestin, whose title is Continuous Improvement Manager of Continuous Manufacturing at Orica, which, in case you're unfamiliar with it, is the world's largest provider of commercial explosives and innovative blasting systems to the mining, quarrying, oil and gas and construction markets. It's also a leading supplier of sodium cyanide that's used for gold extraction and a specialist provider of ground support services in mining and tunneling. Brenda joined Orica in 2016 after spending several years working at BHP, as a metallurgist working with uranium and copper. And prior to BHP, she worked for four years also as a metallurgist at ANSTO, which stands for Australian Nuclear Science and Technology Organization. Lastly, Brenda provides speaking, mentoring, and coaching services to driven female engineers so they can gain clarity on their unique strengths and skills and get the confidence needed to leverage all of them for maximum impact in the workplace. Brenda, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you still caffeinated and ready to go? Hello, hello, hello. Yes, I am. Yes, I am. How are you today? (laughs) I am great. I am great. I should let our listeners know, our pickup from her accent is joining us from Australia.
1: Yes, I am. I'm based in Melbourne, Australia. So it's uh,
0: a little bit early here and
1: in the future from your your time zone.
0: (laughs) And I looked it up. Actually, I have a globe right next to my desk, just off from where you can... I'm gesturing over to it and looked up Melbourne, Victoria. And it's the most southeastern corner of Australia, about 87 miles or 140 kilometers from Phillip Island, which I've never heard of. Yes.
1: And they've got lots of lovely little penguins that come over at Phillip Island. And you can see the little, it's really a nice little spot. (laughs) You must come visit.
0: (laughs) I would love to come visit. In fact, my son has been obsessed with Australia. My son is going to be 17 later this month and is absolutely obsessed since I think like the third grade when he had to do a report on another country and he did the report on Australia and learned g'day. That was like, he's like, I can speak Australian, mom. (laughs) That's classic. (laughs) It is classic, but he is still obsessed and still wants to go. So one day we'll see. I am joining you in case you don't know, from Maryland, which is on the East Coast of the United States. It's very near to the US Capitol. But I also want our listeners to know and our viewers to know, well, really, it's more relevant for our listeners that if they want to learn how to break into engineering, they should check out the show notes for this episode to see if Brenda's Espresso Shots episode has already dropped. So, Brenda, I was thinking maybe we should kick things off today before we get into what you are doing right now in your current role at Orica, that we could touch on a topic that you've gotten into on your wonderful YouTube series, Chronicles of a Female Engineer. I love that title. And that is starting off with some myth busting around what engineers actually do and what the field is really like. You actually did touch on this at the end of our Espresso Shots episode, but let's just kick things off now at the beginning of this main Time for Coffee interview, kind of myth-busting what an engineer actually does because there are an awful lot of misperceptions.
1: <laughs> yes, yes, there certainly are. So people often think that engineering is for boys. And I think the premise of this myth comes because people think engineers work on cars and they make buildings. And that's really the, the knowledge that people have. So if you ask some high school, primary school girls and students, what does an engineer do? Mm, maybe they make cars <laughs> and make buildings. So that's the initial myth that I like to bust because engineers are very broad and engineers can work on coding. They can work in computers. Chemical engineers work in water, food manufacturing. They can make beers and alcohol in distilleries. They can work in petrochemical industries, mining, and even manufacturing cars in in heavy industry. So alongside those things is an additional number of applications. And then there's bridges and structural engineers. And so the the list is endless. People also believe that engineers have got to be very analytical. They don't understand the soft skills that come into an engineer and the very important soft skills. So people often think, oh, I'm not good at maths, so I can't be an engineer. And yes, there are a few modules of maths that you need to do during your college and university studies, but as long as you keep track, keep up with it, ask your tutors, because everything stacks on, right? So if you don't pay attention in the first few weeks, it can be a struggle, but keep up with the content, keep stacking it on. And after second year, you know, I haven't used mathematics in my day-to-day job (laughs) for years now. So yes, it's foundation. Yeah. (laughs) So some roles, some engineering jobs do not even focus on mathematics. So that's a common misconception around engineers as well, and those are the two key ones that I really like to bust: the fact that you can work in multidisciplines, and that math is not a must-have for the whole, you know, for your whole career.
0: I really was blown away when I heard you mention that on your YouTube series. I thought, well, of course, math would be foundational. So, what kind of math? What are the basics that you? must take just sort of foundational math in order to graduate with an engineering degree?
1: Yes. So there is a lot of statistics that's involved. You do a lot of thermodynamics and what that bases on is, ooh, even I've <laughs> lost touch of what's, what's involved, but statistics is the main one that you, you bank on. And complex theories, you know, you're Pythagoras theorem, etc. I mean, look, I actually, <laughs> it's, it's a few, be honest, I haven't used it in so long that I don't even remember what the, <laughs> the subjects are called in university, but it's there for a moment in time. It's there for a year or two. Focus, 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 get the help you need, get some extra tutorial sessions if you need to, just keep up and pass so that you can get on to the more juicy subjects that you want to and make
0: your way out to the
1: industry that excites you.
0: You can always take free classes on Khan Academy and learn about this. There's Coursera, there are other places where you can go and take a cheap cheaper class, maybe than what you would be paying in school or something to supplement your your studies. Fantastic. So now that we've gotten that out of the way, Brenda, let's dig into what the heck you do as a continuous improvement manager of continuous manufacturing at Orca, what is a continuous improvement manager?
1: So a continuous improvement manager is essentially someone who looks to improve systems, processes, and workflows for the benefit of reducing costs, reducing the time it takes to do an activity, and essentially improving the experience overall. So in my role, I am responsible for standardizing the systems and processes that we use on our site and predominantly the safety systems. So I have had the pleasure of introducing new Management of change system and a new permit to work system from our historical systems that are being offloaded and really helping people understand the why, what's the benefits of our new system? How does it work well for you? You know, because everyone wants to know what's in it for them (laughs) and also creating the new standards and training that will facilitate the implementation of these new processes.
0: So, could you take us into a typical day? We are doing this interview here in mid January of 2021 the coronavirus is in Australia, even though it is much, much, much better there than it is here in the United States, but you are working from home. What does it look like? What, maybe you could take us into what it's like now and what it was like before the coronavirus hit when presumably you were in an office.
1: Yes. So what it's like now at home is, I suppose, plenty of meetings. <laughs> and really, these meetings are around multiple facets. So I'll sort of get into the day and I'll have a look at the prior day's performance on one of our plants. So I'll review the performance and see if we've had any incidents overnight, see if we've made any how we tracked in terms of production, and also if there was anything that was highlighted as an issue. So this really helps me to sort of keep track of what are our customers, what are our sites finding as issues that could potentially become bigger in the future. So this is more for me to keep track and keep a finger on the pulse before something gets bigger than, you know, than her. So that's the first aspect. And then the next thing is really to start having some meetings with the sites, particularly around projects that I'm running. So right now I've got some projects around migration to a new document management system that I'm progressing. So there may be a couple of meetings with my four different sites around how they're progressing with that, looking at creating a procedure and getting that reviewed from the various stakeholders, as well as then catching up with people to collate our weekly reporting. So I also coordinate the reporting for our division. So it's a little bit of a multi-hatted role. (laughs) And again, it's a role where I don't have direct influence over the outcome. I need to liaise with plenty of stakeholders, get resources on their plans, find time for their people to attend training, find time for them to advise on where they've gotten to and certain milestones for my project. And so, yes, a lot of talking. (laughs) And the only difference, I guess, the main difference with now and when I was based on a site or in an office where I can go outside and perhaps do some safety interactions. So I typically like to go out and see people in action, people who are perhaps operating a plant or people who are working in a lab or in the workshop and sort of understand, hey, what are you working on today? What are the safety hazards you're exposed to as a part of this job? And how are you controlling yourself? How are you avoiding, you know, getting hurt and ensuring that you go home in the same way that you came to work today? So that's the the, the key difference between being in the office and obviously having a chit chat and stopping by people's desks <laughs>
0: and Absolutely. having a discussion. Absolutely. Well thank you for that. So When you talk about the plants that you're interfacing with, what are those plants actually producing? What are they working on?
1: So the continuous manufacturing plants are making an oxidizing agent, which is used in the explosives industry. So we typically have ammonia plants, ammonium nitrate plants, nitric acid plants, and cyanide plants. So these are the plants that I'm referring to when I say walking around at the plant. And essentially, they're massive. They're (laughs) a large footprint full of pipes and valves and large networks of tubes, tanks, uh, things on a large scale. So you're walking around. Most of the stuff happens within you know, within the tanks. You don't really see things flowing around. You mainly go on your computer. So right now I can probably go onto my computer and look at the process and make sure everything's at the right temperature and operating fine. So I could sort of dial in now and have a look at how things are trending.
0: Well, that would so actually be kind of cool. Are you able to do that and share your screen? Ooh,
1: not right now. No, I can't do that right now.
0: <laughs> okay, okay. Oh, because that would be super cool. I-, I had to ask. Prior to the current job, that you have. You actually worked as a senior manufacturing engineer on ammonia. What did that entail?
1: So as a senior manufacturer, manufacturing engineer, my role was really around creating the processes, standard processes, again, sort of similar to what I segued into in my current role. So it's fine-tuning the systems and processes that help our operators on the field, so those on the ground operate the ammonia plant. So this is creating work instructions that are streamlined, updating procedures to start up and shut down the process, clarifying process control instructions. So really providing the support information that helps not only our operators to run the plants, but also our maintainers when they need to come in and maintain a plant, how do they need to make sure they leave that in a safe situation for us to start the plant back up again.
0: Cool. And prior to that, you worked on uranium in yes. solvent extraction. And I have no idea what that means or what it entailed, Brenda.
1: Yeah. So it's very complex. I don't know how I can simplify it, but essentially solvent extraction is a separation process. And what is d- mining essentially is a process where, let's, let's talk about the front end of the process. You dig up a whole lot of dirt and you really don't want to separate that dirt so you can... Get the valuable mineral, which in this case was uranium. So it has to go through a whole lot of processes. You need to grind that rock so it becomes a lot smaller. Then you need to add acid and various chemicals so you can leach out (laughs) the valuable mineral into a solution. But now you want to separate that solution even more so it can become concentrated. So if you think of like your concentrated dishwashing fluid versus like something that's not concentrated, you know, a small little drop makes for big, you know, washing up (laughs) in your sink. So similarly, You want to sort of concentrate all that up and solvent extraction is a process that concentrates up your uranium into the final product. So it's a separation process. You're discarding all the other minerals, for example, copper, gold, and silver that could also be in the solution. And then you're only treating the uranium and getting that to a final product. And we used to ship that through to France and some European clients where they use that for electricity generation.
0: Got it. I I would imagine that it's used in nuclear plants. Is that right? Uranium? That's right. Yeah. For electricity generation and sometimes for some other things. But you spent many years as a metallurgist. I should have looked up this answer before, but I'm going to ask it. So is uranium? Uranium is not a metal, right? So, what's the difference between being a metallurgist and what you did with uranium?
1: Okay. So, being a metallurgist. So, metallurgists are really responsible for that system of extraction that I mentioned, the process of extracting valuable minerals from a bulk product. So, metallurgists can work in any application. So, essentially, we extract any mineral from any sort of Bulk product, so that's why I could work in a gold industry and extract gold. You know, be responsible for the processes that extract gold, for the processes that extract copper. So, as a metallurgist, you're sort of working in tandem. So the geologists are the ones on the front end. So geologists will site like they'll use drilling and they'll understand where the valuable metal is located and they'll blast over there. And that stuff comes up to the ground and it comes to my end, to the processing facility. And this is where the metallurgist looks after the processing. And this is the stages in which you have to to process. Like I mentioned, you need to grind the rocks first, get them down to some size. You need to use cyclones and things that separate the fines from the bulk the solids. This is getting really technical. And then you add different chemicals and then you let things settle. So you let You know, you let your solids settle and then you get the liquor on top. You get that liquor and you do further processing. So, it's quite quite intense and quite time-bound as well. So, you'll notice that a lot of these manufacturing and mining facilities work 24 hours a day and it's a continuous process and just continues to flow. You continually have fresh ore coming up from the ground. It keeps getting processed and you end up with a drum of uranium oxide. You end up with a copper plate, which gets stacked in a <laughs> you know, stack of plates and gets sent to on a railway or on a port to the customers for further processing and whatever that can be. The steel industry, um, in iron ore manufacturing, and all sorts of different industries use these products to make electricity to, for example, at our ammonia facility, one of the byproducts is carbon dioxide. And carbon dioxide is actually used in soda, like to make your Coca-Cola and your Pepsi. So in bottling, you know, so there's all these side, side industries where the byproducts can also be used. So very interesting indeed.
0: <laughs> love it. Love it. I just want to go back to something you mentioned when you were talking about the separation process. You said that there's a liquor that floats yes. on top. What, what did you mean by that? The liquor. Yes. So if you can imagine, we've, had, we've got
1: rocks and dirt. So let's say an easy way for me to explain it is to use dirt. So if you add dirt and water, so if you add a cup of dirt and you add water to it and you mix it all up, right, you're going to have murky water on top and your solids are going to sit on the bottom. So you now take that murky water because essentially the acid and the chemicals you've added have caused the minerals to now be in the water section. So you take that murky water and you add some more products to that and the stuff that comes out of that is now a new product and that's the product you want. So each step, each process is intentionally moving your mineral from one state to another state. So I like to think of maybe copper is an easy one that we used to use in our science (laughs) experiments when copper sulfate turns blue when you add certain compounds to it. So that's the mineral changing state. So that's essentially what you're doing, (laughs) continually changing the state of the minerals and getting it into various forms until you get your final product.
0: Yes. There's a television show that actually went into that, not with that substance, but with something else called Breaking Bad. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. It was the whole separation process, (laughs) Brenda. I also want to touch on something else you mentioned, which was about how it's a 24 hour process, because on your YouTube series, you actually devoted one entire episode to the unspoken challenges that engineers working on a mine site have to deal with. Specifically, there were three things that you had been unaware of, one of which was the shift work. Could you talk
1: about that? So the shift work is very intense. So like I mentioned, 24-hour operations. So they typically have two shifts, a day shift and a night shift. And they will be 12-hour shifts by, by nature. And you often need to arrive on time or a little bit before your shift so you can understand what's been happening, get a bit of a handover process happening. And oftentimes, I mean, I was lucky. My mine site, I lived, you know, maybe nine kilometers away from the mine. So my journey was about, you know, 10 minutes on the bus. Where so were this? This is in Roxby Downs in South Australia. So about six hours north of Adelaide. It was a remote mining town with about 5,000 people. And most of those people work on the mine site in some form or other or in the little town. And what that entailed was waking up at five o'clock or so, getting your gym workout in, (laughs) going in, having breakfast and getting on the bus and getting into the town. If you had a car, you could drive as well. And then once you get there, you want to get there quarter to six or so, get changed into your high-vis protective equipment, and then get into the changeover meeting and understand what's happened over shift. If you're running the concentrator process, maybe you want to have the handover with the person that you're handing over from. They'll let you know, oh, I missed the sample or something's a little bit off spec. Can you make sure you check it out in the first 20 minutes or so? So they'll let you know what what needs to be handed over, what needs to be done. And then you go through the rest of the day, taking samples, you know, writing reports, generating investigations or following through and talking to people about, hey, what happened this day? And a number of things. So my, my role throughout the 12 hours differed depending on which position I was in because I was a metallurgist and then I moved to a senior role and then I was an operations superintendent. So that's different applications across the, those roles. But after that, you'd finish up the day. You know, towards six o'clock and have another meeting, hand that over to the night shift, get home, maybe do some exercise, eat. And you're so buggered by the end of it. <laughs> you want to have another early night because you're waking up early again. So it does take a lot out of you. Some sites, the mine is actually 30 minutes, 45 minutes away. So you're waking up at 3 4 a.m. in the morning, and you're getting home at, you know, seven thirty at night. So, you know, before you know it, 15 hours of your day has been dedicated to something
0: that's work related. And you mentioned I'm sorry I didn't mean to interrupt go ahead i was just going to say you mentioned that in this youtube video that sometimes those 12 hour shifts could run for 4 days sometimes they could run for 10 days and then you would get a number of days off after that but you really were unprepared for how grueling it was going to be and kind of how lonely it would be as well
1: yes so when i had started my role at the mine site i was doing a monday to friday job and that was 10 hours so i knew you know the long hours were were there, but definitely shifting into a shift roster, waking up and particularly night shift is a challenging one because you sort of need to be asleep during the day when people are, you know, when there's traffic outside or people are hustling and bustling outside your room and making noise and it's bright outside. So, trying to get decent sleep during the the day so you can work a night shift and, you know, it gets lonely because people are not awake when you're doing your job or, you know, people are at different you know, different parts of their day, you know, so people, if you're meant to be sleeping while people are awake, then it gets lonely. And also you're in a remote location, you're alone. There's not many people to talk to outside of the workplace. And you've only got a few hours where you actually feel alive enough to do much that you just don't want to communicate. So you end up, it's almost like a, a Swiss cheese effect. Everything lines up such that you're tired you you're lonely you don't have time to really have deep connections to network and you're in a, a strange place and this was 6 hours away from my common friends my friends and family that I knew having to learn to make new friends and get a new social network so lots of things that come into play as you transition into a remote mining
0: site role and then as a woman i think there was another layer of challenge and you mentioned that it's changing I'd have to imagine it hasn't changed quickly enough. So you would have to wear, because you're dealing with different compounds that are extremely dangerous, so you would have to wear protective gear. And that gear wasn't made for a petite woman or a regular-sized woman. It was made for a man, whether that be the jackets or the boots.
1: Certainly. And that's correct. So often my jackets would be way over my, <laughs> my arms, you know, so you're trying to like shovel it on, but you know, you're cold. So it's, if it's winter, you want your jacket and you need to be warm. So you kind of it's a catch 22. Pants, perhaps not really designed for the feminine waist or, you know, they don't sit just right. So you've got to have your belts. Um, socks, some ladies tell me they need to wear double socks just so that their boots, you know, the boots that you have to wear. If you don't have the right size for females, you wanna, you know, put double socks on so you can minimize the blisters and things that'll come as a result of that. So really as women who've come through the industry, they've now started to I even know one lady who's started to design, you know, safety equipment, particularly for women, simply because (laughs) we're becoming more prevalent in the industry. Shirts that are tailored to our bodies, um, pants that fit, jackets in our sizes, and even cool colors like pink and purple are also things that are on the menu now. So that's really exciting to see. Pink hats, pink hard hats, and and those sort of things, paraphernalia, that just makes you feel like you belong, makes you feel included, and it may not have been on the agenda before But certainly now a lot more discussion is around this topic.
0: So what is it like for a woman engineer in your industry? We haven't touched on this yet. What has it been like? Have there been other challenges because of your gender being in this space? And what do you think our young listeners can expect to find getting into this industry in twenty twenty one versus when you joined fifteen years ago?
1: Yes. So I think there's certainly been some decent changes. We still I still hear lots of people talking about a boys club and I guess that's by virtue of a male dominated industry. We're going to see that there's plenty more men around than women. But you certainly I certainly find there's a lot of support for women. There's a lot of people are now embracing women and wanting more women on on the table. And really, I've now started to speak up a lot more and make sure I ask questions and I'm involved actively because I think part of the conversation, that's why I'm passionate about empowering women in the industry. Andrea, if you've seen some of my chronicles, I talk about how to build your visibility in the industry because as I inspire and as the industry inspires more women to join we want them to be in a position where they actually speak up and start to challenge things that have been the norm. Like I said, this, you know, PPE, personal protective equipment for women wasn't on the agenda because perhaps there weren't many women around and no one spoke up about how uncomfortable it was or how when you when you're on maternity leave, when you're pregnant, you have to just have your shirt with the buttons un you know unbuttoned because there is no maternity style top. You just have to unbutton your shirt your, you know, your your top. So it's around challenging the norm and speaking up and trying to be a face for change, essentially. So in 2021, things that you can still expect are that you will, you are an engineer. So come in being confident in your skills, come in being willing to learn, come in wanting to ask questions, demonstrate what you're doing, like keep people abreast of what you've been doing, the challenges that you've overcome in the industry, projects that you've worked on, and just keep, let people know what you're up to, right? Because I think women like to work under the <laughs> under the radar we don't like to self promote we don't like to talk about what we're doing we think we can just put head, our heads down bum up and people will know what we're up to but oftentimes we need to you know let people know what we're up to so <laughs> i think that that provides a small spotlight into the industry i know there will be challenges a lot of my friends sometimes get called Diversity hires now. So there's another face to this challenge, Andrea. As we inspire more women in, some people, you know, people will be like, oh, you were just hired because you're a woman. So there's another layer where we need to also prove that we're, you know, we're worthy to be here and we've got the skills and we've got the experience that has allowed us to be in this space. So uh, hold your heads high, <laughs> be prevalent
0: and show up and keep talking about what you're doing. I think that's my you advice. Women. Or here. why. Brenda makes such a magnificent coach for engineers. So yay. Brenda, I want to flashback very quickly to when you were in university. You went to the University of Newcastle and you got a bachelor's of engineering in chemical engineering, a member of the honors class, by the way. You graduated in 2006. Just very quickly, did you know what you were going to do with your degree when you graduated.
1: No. Oh, well, when I graduated, yes. (laughs) When I entered chemical engineering, I wanted to be a cosmetics. I wanted to manufacture cosmetics. I was an 18-year-old who loved the L'Oreal ads because you're worth it. And I I was like, I'm into that. I want to make some lipstick and (laughs) cosmetics, face powder. But when I got to my third year in engineering, and we typically do our summer internships and get our experience in the third year, there were no cosmetic companies, (laughs) there was no pharmaceuticals. I was like, hey, what am I going to do? So there was mining and there was water, there was food and there was manufacturing. And I come from a small mining town back in, in Zimbabwe, which is where I'm from. And so I thought, well, let me just try this mining game and see what this is all about. And I was actually very excited with the industry, the variety of challenges that it proposed and the ability to turn dirt into gold. That was like profound. And I was like, this is, <laughs> this is still
0: pretty cool. A lot better than makeup.
1: <laughs> exactly. And so I spent many years in the mining industry and then pivoted into the manufacturing industry. Still used a lot of the similar skills that I used um, in mining as well.
0: I've already mentioned that your first job out of university, I believe, and please correct me if I'm wrong, was as a metallurgist at ANSTO. Is that accurate?
1: That's correct. Yes.
0: Okay. So were you involved in extracurriculars, Brenda, while you were in university that in hindsight actually had prepared you, had given you skills that you found valuable once you got out into the working world?
1: Yes. So I was involved in some of the social clubs on campus. I was a treasurer for the Krampus Christian Movement, which was one of the organizations there. And that helped me to liaise and work as part of a committee to provide reports and that sort of thing. So that got me into the game quite early. I also was a part of the, as I mentioned before, maybe not in this section, I was an intern at the BHP Technology Center. So they had a little center outside of my university, which was running some pilot plants and they were 24 hours as well, but they were split up into eight hour shifts. So you had a morning shift, an afternoon shift and a night shift. So the afternoon and night shifts were pretty good for me to juggle a morning lecture and then head over and do a shift in the afternoon and get paid for it. So this was really handy to to get something that had experience and value in my discipline and allowed me to then set myself up for the job that I got after I graduated.
0: Fantastic. Was
1: there more? Yes. So what else did I get involved in extracurricular wise? I think that's pretty much, those are the two key things. So if you can get involved, I think I was also part of the debating club. (laughs) And so really being in a position where I was exercising my communication skills and trying to influence people to my side of the table, I found that that was quite a handy skill to bring forth into the industry as well.
0: Oh, I have no doubt whatsoever, but I just have two quick final time for coffee questions to squeeze in here. Brenda, I try to ask all of my guests if they would share time in their professional life when they struggled. Because I think it's very easy for for college students, especially for young professionals, to look at someone who's got 15 years of experience and sees all of the impressive titles and whatnot and think, hmm, she just sailed through her career and there were never any times when she struggled, or maybe even failed, because I strongly, strongly believe failure is the way that we learn. And it shouldn't be seen as a scarlet letter, but rather a badge of honor. And I ask this question of my guests also because I'm not looking to embarrass you. I'm looking to empower our young viewers and our young listeners. So Brenda, is there a quick story that you could share? And most importantly, how you persevered, And if there was a lesson that you learned in the process.
1: Yes. So I think one of my highlights or lowlights, I suppose, that comes to mind in terms of this challenge was when I was in my operations superintendent role. And I was actually at BHP at the time working on a time when we had one of our plants in the uranium solvent extraction. When I was in that role, we were one of the plants was offline. So, Sorry, it our copper solvent extraction. And the, one of the copper sections was off and the other one was on. And what this meant was that the offline one had multiple people working in it and trying to fix pumps and trying to, you know, take the scale out and clean out the t- tanks and vessels. So essentially everything was open, if you want to call it open heart surgery on one plant, and the other plant was operating as per normal. So the challenge here was really trying to deal and manage two work groups. My day to day work group and the contractors who are external and had to be directed and had to work safely and not interact essentially with the other work groups. So I found that this was challenging, particularly because my ball had to handle juggling priorities. And we had a small incident, one of the, on, you know, quite close to the front of the, the offline operation. And so I think this was challenging because I was like, oh my gosh, we should have thought about this. We should have known that this wasn't covered right? And I think my boss at the time was like, how do we not think about this sort of thing? So really what I had to do was take ownership of the, the oversight, quickly put into action a control measure to prevent this from happening again and ensure that I had additional support. So I actually asked my maintenance manager to help support in this aspect and to also flag anything that his team may have identified throughout the course of that period where we had both plants online and offline. And I think what it taught me was that it's okay to not always find out everything. What's important is the recovery, right? I could have, you know, been like, woe is me. You know, I should have seen this coming and been down in the dumps. But really picking yourself up after that down, you know, the downturn and taking the learning from it and really just moving forward and ensuring that it doesn't happen again. So I think time and time again now, failures almost don't scare me. Like they sort of like, they, they empower me simply because I know that there's a learning that is behind it. Like, what can I actually take? It's only a failure if I don't learn something from it. (laughs) So, you know, take that event, take that issue that you found, assess it, analyze what, what went wrong, what went right, and what can you improve for next time and do it.
0: Oh, such great advice. Thank you so much for sharing that story with us, Brenda. Final question. If you could go back to university and do it all over again, but based on the incredible wisdom that you have today, what advice would you give yourself, Brenda?
1: Don't be afraid to try something new and give everything you put your hand to your all. Take initiative. Just take one step at a time. You don't have to know the full journey. Just take the next best step.
0: fantastic. Brenda is the creator of the Chronicles of a Female Engineer. It is a YouTube series that I highly recommend you take a look at because it really does demystify what an engineer does. It gets into all different topics, how to get ahead in the industry from entry level to management, how to develop mindset. We didn't even really get into that. But Brenda, as you can hear, is a very upbeat woman. Positivity is something that is hugely important to her. And it's something that she tries to model to her students, and to her team members. You can check that out. Brenda, I want to thank you so much for making Time for Coffee today with me and the Time for Coffee community and for being the very first Time for Coffee guest to be simultaneously streamed live on LinkedIn. It has been such a pleasure.
1: Thank you so much, Andrea. It's been a pleasure. You have managed this conversation very, very well and made it comfortable for me to do this as a very first time with you as well. So thank you so much for that.
0: (laughs) Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7, no matter where you live.